And from Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Sauce, a celebration of the wonderful writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. I am your host, Elliot Sang. Of course, a contributor to Central Sauce and a content creator. You can check out my YouTube channel. Contestant number one, (laughs) we have Brandon, a managing editor at Central Sauce. Brandon, please give us an introduction of yourself. What's up, guys? Yeah, like uh, like Elliot said, I do a lot of the coordinating at Central Sauce, uh, a lot of the writing. I've also been doing a bunch of stuff at OK Player lately. Um, but the thing I want to plug for you guys today is my four-part capstone story on unionization and labor rights. Um, it's focused sort of on the increased union activity and growth here in greater Boston, but it definitely takes a lens to the wider sort of expansion of the labor movement sort of through the examples here in Greater Boston. Uh, you can check that out on my website at authory.com slash Brandon Hill. Right on to each their means. Let's get to our second contestant. We have Mickey Hillerback, a writer at Central Sauce and a few other places, as well as the host of the Fifth Element radio show, 92 Till. Mickey, introduce yourself. Yo, what up? First and foremost, it's very hilarious. Uh, the dichotomy of Elliot's game show host intro today and Brandon's very serious talk about his writing and unionization. <laughs> um, <laughs> I want to plug something a little less serious uh, in my writing. I just dropped my debut profile piece uh, with MTV News where I profiled uh, Afro R&B singer Nanso Amadi. Um, he's got an album coming that is revealed in the ple- in the piece tentatively called When It Blooms, uh, and it kind of covers sonically and lyrically his sort of sonic migration um, from growing up in Lagos, Nigeria, going to the UK, actually studying in Wales to be a chemical engineer, then moving to uh, about an hour outside of Toronto to further his education, but also further his music career. And it talks, the piece centers around um, how his sound changed through all of those places, as well as her, his uh, kind of perspective on life and his own music career. Um, so check that out when you get a shot. And now back to your wild radio hosting Elliot <laughs> it's clearly a game show it's clearly it's clearly Thank come on down so energy much y'all well we might as well speed along of course Mickey has to watch a Ravens game I've got to take a nap and Brandon has to lead in organizing of a movement for a hunger strike in South Worcester our first story our first story comes from Brandon uh some sort of small publication called the New York Times. The piece is <laughs> how music loops make help me feel more present. Uh, Brandon, tell us about the piece. Of course, yeah. So as Elliot said, um, the piece is how music loops make me feel more present by Miguel uh, Ortarola for the New York Times. Um, and this is particularly for a column in the New York Times called Letters of Recommendation. Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to bring this piece and sort of just point out this column is because, you know, a lot of our listeners are young freelance journalists, aspiring freelance journalists, people who want to write things and eventually, hopefully, maybe get paid for them. Um, And this column in the New York Times is really cool because 
the whole concept of this column is basically it's a weekly column. It can be just about anything. And it's a space where, you know, anyone can take some weird hobby or some passion and just yarn about it to their fullest extent. You know, the same way that you can go off, talk to your friends for an hour about some weird hobby or passion of yours. Um, but in this case, you know, it's people who are very strong writers bringing that same kind of energy to um, a well-crafted, you know, sh- they're not super long pieces, but a well-crafted short column um, on that hobby or that passion, and they can really break it down. Uh, so as far as like pitching goes, you know, it seems pretty simple to come up with a pitch, um, shoot it off to them. It's probably a pretty competitive pitching, but, you know, definitely a good, uh, a good opportunity for young writers to maybe, you know, take a shot at something as big as the New York Times. Um, and in particular, this column, uh, how music loops help me feel more present was very fitting for the podcast because it is um, a piece of music journalism centered, you know, on music. And what it talks about here is the journalist Miguel um, talks about how loops and music are both sort of timeless and time defining, right? And that's in that, like, you know, there's a there's a pretty vivid scene in the story where um, he's at a party and. He sort of walks into the room and he's not a super, you know, outgoing party person. You know, he's more of a, a in the corner of the room sort of just vibing, you know. And and the scene is the way he describes it is this very like eloquently written, like very flowery language about, you know, even sort of like abstract in a way. Um, like walking into a room and then, you know, time stops and you close your eyes and all you just run through all these loops that are playing, you know, the house music, whatever the DJ is playing. Um, and these individual pockets of short loops, like within the string of songs that play over the course of a party. And then he opens his eyes and the party's over and you walk out, right? So it's using this very like hip hop based, you know, sample looping sort of structure. Um, he mentions, you know, people like Jay Dilla, who really like popularized and like expanded on the concept of like looping these samples um, as a way to sort of like like bring in the ability to to fall into a loop and the repetitive nature of a loop. And in that moment, it feels timeless, right? Because the loop repeats, because it continues to go through it, it's easy to sort of forget time while you're in the loop. But as all things must end, you know, eventually the loops end, eventually the songs end. And the reminder that you were sort of in that timeless moment is sort of an, an incentive to then move on to the next moment you know, when it's over, but appreciate moments as you're in them. And I really appreciated sort of that like abstract look at at loops. You know, it's really easy to break down like the actual, you know, mechanics of sampling and looping, but this abstract version of it that sort of looks at like how they can make us be more present, but also like not forget ourselves entirely um, was a really like interesting perspective to take on something that, you know, you read a lot about, that you hear all the time. Um, and it was just a great example of, of this, this New York Times column, Letters of Recommendation. So, um, you know, what did you guys think about the piece? What were some of your favorite quotes? Like there's some really good flowery writing in here too. So there's like several quotes that I wanted to read, but I'll, I'll toss it off to you guys. You know, what's funny is like for so long when I was doing this podcast, I feel like I was the king of bringing quotes in. Um, But for this whole episode, all of my notes, I have no quotes. It's more ideas that I was really struck by with all of these pieces. Um, 
And this one particularly did something interesting that kind of brings back a concept that I, me and, and Brandon have definitely talked about on a few episodes of the podcast, which is uh, how writers mirror their subjects. Um, mm. For what we've talked about before is usually writers mirroring vocalists and what we've talked about on the podcast is specifically rappers. And the thing I talk remember talking about the most was in our MF Doom episode about how the writer of the piece that I brought, I believe it was Craig Jenkins, kind of mirrored the flow of MF Doom within his own writing. Or it might have been for one of the other. Dylan pieces. Green. We kind of, I think it was yeah, Dylan yeah, Green. Dylan, Dylan Green, there you go. On um, MF Doom still, same episode. Exactly. I think I was talking about the piece that Brandon brought and then I brought a piece on written by Craig Jenkins. Anyway, uh, to get back to this piece, um, what's interesting is this one kind of flips it a little bit. And this piece to me, when I was reading it and the kind of like, aha light bulb came at the end of the piece, uh, it felt like, I don't know, intentionally or unintentionally, it felt intentional to me that the writer had mirrored his own description of a Jay Dilla hip hop loop. Um, and what I mean by let me kind of break down the description as I, it was taken by me uh, from the writer, which was that it's this kind of loop that that goes around and gets you lost in it. But then once the loop is mm. done, it never goes longer than it's supposed to go. So Jay Dilla specifically, most of his songs were like under three minutes. Um, so and then once the loop is over, you kind of come back to and go out on to the next thing. Um and that is, ex- oh, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I open this by saying I don't have any quotes. I do have a quote. The final line, <laughs> the final line of the piece, I open my eyes and the moment's over is the l- final line of the piece is literally the only quote I wrote for this whole episode. Uh, and that that's kind of the exact um, description that he gave of that Jay Dilla loop, just going in for a shortened period of time. This is a very shortened, condensed piece that only uses the like direct details. And then as soon as it's over, you're on to the next thing. But you kind of get lost in the loop of the piece as if you would get lost in the loop of a Jay Dilla song um, or Jay Dilla instrumental, I should say. Uh, so I thought that was the element of the piece overall that really struck me as that kind of mirroring thing. And in a way that I had not experienced kind of mirroring, mirroring the sonics rather than mirroring the lyricism. Uh, which I thought was really cool. Right. I think that that's uh, both of you have pulled away some really interesting observations in terms of the feel of a piece. Um, something that we often, when we're taught to do journalism, to do a journalism, it's not necessarily incorporating like an artistic approach or like a, a strictly like creative, emotive approach where you're trying to make a person feel something and in a theoretically focused way like here's what I want to impart or here's what I I want the person to feel and, and question and I think that articles like this that allow for a sort of personal perspective and allow for somebody to speak on something creatively in a short period of time allow that kind of open-endedness in terms of where journalism ends and where nonfiction begins or where poetry begins that kind of can make a piece very compelling for me, there were a lot of things that um, I took from it in terms of the sort of endless depth that something which you would not necessarily consider to be um, filled with a type of depth or a type of movement in a in a loop, right? Which is you know a recurring element, a recurrent element, as Miguel says, as Miguel writes. I think that in a lot of time, um, 
in a lot of ways, people sort of speak diminutively about looping. There is definitely a very Western, classical, classist sort of view of what a good piece of music should be, and very much that entails a type of music that moves a certain way, that has all these different sections that ebb and flow and sway and go up and down, and there's all these different things occurring, some things that fly in and then fly out after a few seconds, right? This idea that you put more detail and more intricacy and more and more narrative inconsistency or narrative changing into a, a piece of music, that's what makes it better. That's what makes it creatively superior. Whereas one of the great things about hip hop is that it recognizes how powerful the loop really is, how much more powerful usually the loop and the just repetition of one piece of music that that particular thing can hold, right? It's, it's finding the multitudes within the simple instead of trying to make everything multitudinous. Uh, I feel like that's one of the things that comes straight out of sampling you know drum loops and 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 dj cool herc and the idea of the b-boys wanting to dance over the best part of a song and so this kind of idea is it feels almost a little bit uh iconoclastic in a sense because it has this desire to speak elevatedly and to to sing the praises of something that oftentimes can be seen diminutively and there's a particular quote that miguel uses from brian eno and peter schmidt um, saying repetition is a form of change. And this is like the kind of contradictory observation that I find always so fascinating because it is usually in these contradictions that we realize really important things. Like something can repeat over and over again and be constantly unchanging and that in and of itself constitutes a revolutionary form of change. And that's what we see in dance music and in hip hop music. So I love this piece because of how it sings the praises of something that I think most people still do not get about what makes these art forms great, about what makes these art forms revolutionary, truly revolutionary, because of how different they are from a, a hegemonic standard of what art and what music is supposed to be and how they completely usurp that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, that's facts. Brandon, uh, before we move on to the next piece, was there any sort of uh, questions or thoughts that you had that maybe you would want us to sort of think, uh, respond to or address? Yeah, I really, uh, so I'm, I'm going to read a quote from here from the paragraph where he's talking about Dilla, because um, you know, obviously, you know, we mostly cover hip hop. It seems the most relevant to our audience to sort of um, extrapolate like how this writing flows. And this paragraph in particular, you know, made me think a lot about how, Elliot, you mentioned like how, you know, taking a sample or taking a loop um, is, you know, taking something that existed previously, but then like, you know, changing it, making it into something new, giving it new meaning. Um, and, in, and in particular, too, with loops, like what I thought was really cool about this is um, he's mentioning Dilla sampling the song 111 by Smokey Robinson. And I'm just going to read a couple sentences here. Um, so he says, Lord have mercy, Robinson begs before the strings take over again. The pain in his pitched up voice brings me close to tears. Why is he pleading for mercy? For whom is he crying? There are no answers, only a drifting call for help. I can understand why Dilla kept many of his creations under two minutes. At some point, it's time to let go, to literally and figuratively change your tune. If not, you can get stuck. 
And one of the things I love in particular about this quote um, is highlighting that like you pull this this little section out of the Smokey Robinson song, right? Smokey crooning, Lord have mercy, which in the original song would have had, you know, some some context within that song where that that sung line or that phrase is referring to, you know, some narrative aspect of the song or some abstract concept in the original song. But when you take that one little segment out, put it into a new song and you loop it, you sort of make it more more abstract. You sort of, you know, you you leave a question in the listener's head like um like Miguel writes like you know, what is he, for whom is he crying? For what is he pleading for? It allows you to then sort of assign almost like your own meaning to it within the context of a new song. And it actually reminded me of um, a bit we read in about city pop and the Pitchfork city pop piece, where it talked about like one of the appeals of Japanese city pop is that these songs use um, like short English phrases, like what's the one I was listening to the other day that was something like star walking pops into head, my head, but I know that's the little Nas X song. Um, <clears throat> but it was some, some phrase, you know, like among the stars, like that being the chorus of the song, purely the only like English words in the song is just the song phrase among the stars. And because it's so not strictly defined, it allows the listener to sort of project their own you know, what they want to feel out of the song, it allows them to project that on it because it's abstract, because it's only a segment and you don't necessarily get all the context that it comes from, which I think is really interesting when you think of loops in terms of like a way to like focus and get lost in something, but then like the end of a loop being sort of like a wake, a waking up moment, right? Like when you're, you know, when you're absorbed in a rhythm and when you're focused on something for an extended amount of time and then it ends, like that's a like, oh shit, like, oh, like I'm here again. You know, it's, it's both lost in time, but also a reminder of your place in time. Um, and I thought, you know, that was just a really interesting way to look at like how we experience this thing that is so core to hip hop music. Yeah, I think that that's a big thing in writing that I'm noticing a lot more is like leaving space for the the reader to kind of interpret it on their own terms. And I thought in this piece, another section that really uh, helped with that was the one where Miguel was kind of describing the escapism inherently that exists within repetition and kind of how it, it he kind of more so just focused on describing how it allowed him to to kind of see things as what they were as they were happening rather than focusing so hard on the past or focusing so hard on the future and then the Mm. way he just kind of described that being a thing rather than him being like this is my mental processing of whatever that is allowed for me to be like yeah and think of times when i've like kind of been within the loop and how it's allowed me to do that is it like (laughs) the direct feeling of it like taking over the haze of my thought processing and like it rather than him when if he would have just explicitly said it I would have been like separated it from myself but it allowed the opening of like me to be able to be like huh how does that really work for me inside my own head and I thought that was really effective yeah I mean I just to close out from a person who you know I've made music at times in my life right I'm a musician and uh, I, a lot of what I do is loop based. It's a trying to create some sort of good loop out of things. And one of the great joys out of that and out of the process of sampling in general is the ability to repurpose things and make an entirely new meaning out of it. Uh, this is the kind of thing that language does. It's the kind of thing that art does. And it's the kind of thing that is so necessary because oftentimes 
we live life as if things are very strict in their definition and as if they're not going to change. And all it takes is a really great piece of art, a great piece of music, a great loop to remind us that like, oh no, the possibilities for us in this world, for our definitions, for our constitutions of things are endless. Anything can happen. Anything can be made anew from what we have already. So really great stuff, really great stuff here. That's How Music Loops Help Me Feel More Present by Miguel Otarola for the New York Times. You can check that out, of course. Support you know, your local publications and stuff. Um, and then for this next one, I actually am going to uh, take the lead here because we decided I'd go second. My piece was called I Got the Internet Going Nuts, creation and the 10th anniversary of something about Cray. Now, I think there's, uh, <laughs> there's a bit of a difference there and, and a bit of a, uh, yeah, there's a funny thing that happens whenever you're dealing with talking about something deep and then switching to talking about an artist like creation who, for all we could say about her, we certainly can't say that like the lyrical content of Creation's music was something that we could call profound. And she was definitely the butt of a ton of jokes during her career, during the time period in which she had a fleeting amount of popularity in 2012. But there's something really special about that time period and about what was going on, what was at play in Creation's music because of the factors, as Jacqueline talks about, of change that were happening in the music industry and in the hip hop world and how people were constantly, you know, new hip hop artists were finding new ways to explore completely shifting the idea of what good rap music is, what good rap music looks like, sounds like, and feels like. And of course, Lil B is the artist that, that <laughs> excuse me, the artist that gets brought up the most when it comes to this time period and him making a, an impact. But it's it's funny because a lot of other artists don't really get talked about in this time period, which is another thing that Jacqueline notes, um, because it's a sort of a lost time period of hip hop music and of music in general, kind of a weird time, one might say. Of course, Kendrick came out with Good Kid Mad City in 2012, Chief Keef came out with Finally Rich, Death Grips, The Money Store. She notes that in, in uh, partway through the piece. But there's all this music that came out during that time period that we just completely forgot about. And I think Creation is one of those artists that gets brought up as belonging to that. I don't know if you guys had any particular <laughs> songs or artists that you think about from that time period that are like lost to time. Uh, Feel free to interject if you do. Um, I have a really good example for this, but I can't. I know remember. which one. Tyga? Does Tyga count? Or is that later? I don't think Tyga counts. I don't think Tyga he's did. forgotten. I have one, though. What's yours, Mickey? <laughs> I think the one that I will always think about is Chitty Bang. Chitty Bang! <laughs> Bro, Chitty Bang came back. What are you talking about? They actually just like put out music like not that long ago. Yeah, you, completely. Yeah. Brandon, Brandon, let me let me say to that, you and I both wish. <laughs> no, no, they really they really did. Hold up. I'm okay, up. shout out Chitty Shout out Chitty Bang though. I was a huge fan in 2011, 12, 13, whenever that was. Um I remember also that's the time cuz there's a time period from Yeah, they got a 2022 single. Look at that. Shouts there's, to them. I'll have to listen to it. Shout out to you like guys. A, there's like a weird corporatization process that happens, obviously, 
with any music genre that's been happening with hip hop for decades. But that particular time period, I'd say from even like 20, 2008 to like 2012 was a time where it was really like, like it was super sanitized in a way that was so forgettable and so bizarre that, and so distant from where we are at now as a culture, like mentioning Chitty Bang, like they had the, they, like there was the big thing with rappers doing the fucking indie dance stuff. Like, I don't really know, like, like if you listen to, you know, Kid Cudi recently re-released, re-released uh, his original Kid Named Cudi mixtape. And like some of the songs are like, you know, like there's a one that's a sample of a, of a band of funeral uh, of a band of horses song funeral and there's other songs that's like little like indie dance references obviously like drake and so far gone has like four or five songs on there it's like he has a fucking remix of a peter Bjorn and john song like i don't know what that was about i don't know what the uh i don't know if you guys remember shwayze yeah uh, <laughs> I don't know uh, so- Sh- no yeah totally what's the song well, uh, I better ride a back, not a back, my partner. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh man, crazy. Yep. She was buzzing all over me. Like, there was like an effort to really create the new pop rap. Yeah. Swayze was off like the tree of gym class heroes, though, for sure. Yeah, yeah, but like in this weird boho version. Like, <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. it's like Jason Mraz band. And then there's, sure. of course, Asher Roth had the. Of course. You know, because the, there's like a big college rap effort yes. right this is where this is from where mac miller originally yeah. emerges yes so for y'all like what do you remember about creation and that time period of rap music and how people were receiving her i'll start with brandon yeah well i think i mean i'm gonna i honestly don't really remember very much about creation at all um but i do remember a lot about lil b and soldier boy who mm. come up in this piece um and that really really speak like Okay, it's so like the core. The core message that I really got from this piece was how Creation was, in a lot of ways, ahead of her time while also not making good music, um, which I think is a really sort of like interesting dynamic to relate there. But they really chalk it up to her being on the cusp of this sort of like internet meme rap, which is just you know coming out of like the early 2010s, um, where you've got you know Lil B and Soldier Boy who are making this music that's not crazy, lyrically dense. What's, there's a, and this is a long piece. It's actually hard to find like the specific quote I'm looking for, but there's a quote in there where she talks about a line from Lil B. Oh, hold up. No, I can find it. Hold up. Cause this is perfect. Exactly what I'm talking about. How it becomes less about um, lyrical finesse and more an understanding of the energy that you're delivering with. And okay, here's the line. The people who complain about rappers like Lil B not knowing any words besides swag fail to understand that the reason Lil B rapped like a dad, like I'm rad, like I'm Brad, like I'm Chad on Like a Martian (laughs) is not because he couldn't come up with a more clever rhyme scheme, but rather that he knew this seemingly mindless lyricism could be more exciting than any traditional rap punchline if delivered with the right energy. Years later, as rappers like RXK Nephew are rightly heralded for rhyming King Vaughn with King Vaughn 11 times in a row, it feels almost quaint to recall how much hostility Lil B received for this perceived lack of skill. So the core aspect of this piece is talking about how Creation is sort of ahead of her time in this area of like internet meme rap, right? But that she gets signed to a label off of a viral hit 
and the label does not understand this whole internet meme rap dynamic. So they kind of try to like bubble her into, I believe the, the best term they were, that the writer referred to her as was a, a more edgy Kesha, right? So they try to bubble her into this like more pop, you know, edgy kind of hip hop, like pop space. And it's really forcing her into something that she's not. Um, something that's not really her identity because they didn't understand where she was at sort of on the cusp of this soldier boy, Lil B thing that they got going on. Um, and how that eventually like, you know, resorts in the album crashing and burning and the label even, you know, only making it available to purchase at CD at hot topic, right? Like the label pretty much tries to bury this album, um, which is really like ironic when you look at like, the power of that sort of like viral stardom, you know, which is, um, you know, the two, there's only like two songs on the album where she has all the writing credits herself were all songs that, you know, one of them's Gucci Gucci, which is her big viral hit, um, that was made, you know, prior to her signing with the label. And those continued to be the most successful songs, even after her sort of like infamous, you know, million dollar signing bonus and like incredibly expensive debut album, her most successful songs are still the ones that she authentically like worked on herself. You know, once you get involved with the the label telling you like, oh, we need this pop song, we're getting you involved with this songwriter. They they put her with um the songwriter who worked with literally like post high school musical Disney Channel stars. You know, that was a, a really great detail to have there. Um But it's sort of that 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 commodification of her artwork and that push into that space that really comes across as like what fucked up the album right yeah yeah mickey um what, what, did you have something to add off of that well <laughs> before i get into my whole like spiel about my perspective on this can we <laughs> is her name pronounced creation as in like a trying to be clever version of the word creation, creation. is I that actually how you pronounce it because I, I believe it is i believe it's the creation but that, people usually it, people usually like shorten it that is so kind of fucking thing. dumb i don't even it know oh, that's, wildly dumb. that's actually kind of dope no oh my it's, god it's, it's dude it's like horrifically not dumb and not with the context of the music <laughs> it's like it's so fucking dumb I, all right. is, there's I, a lot to say about like racial anyway, coding with, with yeah. Creation well, and, and it like, was broken. Right yeah, now. well, it's broken into in the piece. So let me just say this first and foremost. Like, I have no like positive feelings of nostalgia towards the creation creation era. Like, it's not like for me. It wasn't reading this, and I was like, oh, let me tap back into this piece of my adolescence. Like, that was not part of this at all for me. And also, I will even say, like, in, even in Baltimore, growing up, like there were people who were real little B fanatics. Like in my time in high school, like I ugly and God. even like going ugly into God's college, in that same thing. like yeah. Well, Ugly God That's was like po- was post little B really in his like yeah. heyday. Ugly God, I fucked with because Ugly God was all about like comedic punchlines right little little b was like had that too but little b was just like absolute meaningless almost uh existential <laughs> existence of rap but so little b is not also not someone who i personally feel this kind of nostalgia to all that said i think it was really a, a good choice um for this particular style of piece by the writer to make this a more of a piece of creative writing at the core of it, rather than Mm. like, I'm being a journalist right now, because then you like the most interesting part of the piece was the grappling to me 
of like yeah the the yeah, like yeah. so like is like the like her never really being able to put her finger on how she felt was a yeah. really was always the part that I felt like I was getting lost in in the reading because she ne- and she like never does which is great because mm-hmm. it's like there's even like that hint of like guilt for feeling nostalgic, which is like exactly how I think mm. you should feel. Like it's like <laughs> it is there. Like it's like exactly you it. like you're yeah. like it presents this feeling to me that's really weird. That's like also like tied into these like racial ideas that like I shouldn't be the person to speak on, but also I can't ignore. And that was mm. like a really interesting kind of tr- just watching her from an outsider view, like navigate that through her own pen. Like was really kind of interesting for me to to witness um and and just even the dynamics of like creation or creation whatever the fuck as a like as an entity in music at all like as a musician quote unquote and having to be like i don't even know how i really do feel like this is trash like i'm i'm seeing it in front of me i listen back this is trash but there's something about the kind of like foreshadowing of what was to come that has to be legitimized other people like anthony fantano have talked about it Mm. like there was something about this that like is legitimized and then brandon what you said actually strikes really true to me is like the precursor stuff of the viral star who gets taken advantage of by the label system and like that's a really interesting study but also like this shit is trash and i don't know how to feel so Mm -hmm. i think um yeah i thought well and that's why i'm just throw i'm gonna throw a detail in real quick too that's why the writer elliot mentioned earlier bringing up good kid mad city and um i forget the other album that's mentioned but brings up these two like classic hip-hop albums but then yeah but then also or at least specifically when she talked about Good Kid, Mad City, um, and the the other one too that wasn't Chief Keith. She talked about how they were like classic hip hop albums, but that they were not indicative of the direction that hip hop was going to go. But how you couldn't see that at the time. But how now you know more of the popular music is actually more seems to be more inspired by the the Lil B, the Soldier Boy, the Creation, like sort of the meme. The, the more like the meme rap kind of energy is actually what eventually carries over more into like the popular mainstream. Yeah, I think uh, there's two specific themes of this piece that really stand out and that feel extremely novel almost in how like stark and unique they are with this particular story. The first is that idea of subjectivity ultimately where it's just like, something it's just not easy to just say something's good or bad it sometimes you know the people who have the most clear definitions of, of, of music being good and a music being bad are usually really boring people with bad music opinions and most of the time we're sitting there with like oh like i kind of love this but like i really don't know why or i really hate it at the same time or i really hate this even though i know it's good like there's all these different dimensions of that and at the same time that leads into a second theme of it of course, which which in part deals with her industry story and how terribly she was abused and exploited by her label. But also in terms of just the music industry in general, it really was a case of despite how many things Creation's music, Creation's music and image was lacking. And of course, this was also, you know, White Girl Mob and the situations that were going on with that group with her and Lil Debbie and V Nasty. But even though there was so much to to laugh at and to 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 criticize about it 
it was also something that we just weren't ready for. Like we didn't have the tools at the time to properly even criticize it on the level that it would have needed to be criticized because it was doing something that none of us really understood or were ready for. And even now, there's still a degree to which that might be the case where it's like, yeah, like there's some, some pretty obvious stuff that you can laugh at. Ah, the lyricism, aha, the, the sound of this song is super bad and the style is bad, whatever. But we, it's hard to articulate when, a, when a, a person isn't playing by the same rules with which we judge. And I think that that is one of the interesting things about Craig Sean. But I also think it's one of the ways that we can really analyze our, 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 our modern music history and, and that hip hop era, which is so fascinating about it because, you know, like th this genre, right? Like this era and this, this preeminence of the creations of the world, as well as all these other artists that were getting lampooned in similar ways was part of what gave rise to like Macklemore. Right. And that moment of like, well, look at him. Like he's, you know, Macklemore is so deep. And like he's making these songs with like real themes and like he's not consumerist, <laughs> right? Like there was just this really reactionary response in music and in, 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 in hip hop listeners because of this almost desperate need to like try to reclaim something that was traditional and try to reclaim something that was palatable while also being wholesome and like somewhat thoughtful. And so then we have what happens with Macklemore and how quickly it seems like his music aged. And you see that that's because the transition starts to be made culturally among us as hip hop fans, where we start to look at the landscape and start to see these, these new ideas that were introduced years ago. There may be some of them we actually like. There may be some things going on that we really actually needed and we were just not ready for them yet. And now that they're accentuated by artists that we are more comfortable with or more interested in, now it's like, oh, wait a minute. Like, I or, don't just have to listen to Creation to get this. Or to to this. artists that are more talented. So that's right. like the thing is like, this piece is like a real example of how a lot of the time talent and ability is not aligned with innovation and forward movement. Like mm. they, they exist separately a lot of the time, but it doesn't mean that if you have one and not the other, you can't find a form of excess of excess of <laughs> excess is interesting success. Um, <laughs> but excess is a weird Freudian slip. I don't know. Yeah, um, I do, but yeah. So, yeah, but success in either one. But then when you dig to the root of it, it's like, what is the actual value of this if you don't have some version of both? And the reality and answer to that question is not really as much as we may have once thought. Right. Well, I want to conclude with one particular idea. We talked about the music a lot and the talent a lot, of course. But I think maybe the best aspect of this piece is that it centers empathy. Um, it centers yeah, yeah. this... I mean... We, as obviously, as music critics, we are really harsh, right? And sometimes we do things and, like, music fans are just... You know, people on the internet suck, right? We, are, we suck. And a lot of times, we also don't have the ability to, like... We, we don't champion the ability to hold multiple ideas in our head. Like, there can be the idea of creation not only being, like, you know, bad at music, which, of course, is a partially subjective idea, but, like a lot of people would agree with and at the same time there's the, also the the ideas that she may be like this appropriator and this this damaging figure in a black art form 
but then also at the same time being able to say like wait a minute like how much of that was her fault and how much of it was the fault of the corporations that pushed her to be a specific way and that set her up to represent a specific type of thing and how much of it was also a situation wherein she was a very exploited person who was going through an extremely difficult situation and I think I want to conclude sort of by asking you guys like how you felt in terms of about creation as a person at the end of it. Like what did you feel in terms of understanding and learning about her story? Yeah. One of the notes that I, that I, that I wrote was uh, the piece did a really good job of, of kind of balancing out the difference between empathy and sympathy and how empathy is always necessary when it's human beings involved, but sympathy is like a more difficult kind of way to go to and should be grappled with as a Mm. real thing Um, is like, okay, but am I actually sympathetic because there's all these problematic elements, but I am empathetic from the human aspect of this. Um, That centering. Yeah. I mean, that's a, (laughs) that's a concept I think about a lot because I I think it's hugely important for survival or kind of mental sanity as humans to differentiate between the two. And I thought the piece did a really, uh, you know, straightforward job of, of, kind of dealing with that divide and having to try to define it for ourselves. Mickey's over here waking up the listeners. Yeah. <laughs> Some enlightenment yeah. enlightenment coming out of this episode. Yeah. Um, I don't know how I'm going to follow that up. Uh, so I wanted to read a quote, though, like that actually I had in mind as you were talking about, like, you know, these traumatic things that happened to her and how we grapple sure. with, like, you know, what is our view of the music? What is our view of her as a person? Um, and I figured it was definitely worth pointing out that like when we talk about the trauma, because there was real trauma involved in this, um, the whole first part of the piece involves some very, very in-depth reporting on the exact, that like, you know, separate from sort of the, the, the commentary style of the piece, the whole first half is actually very, very well reported on her story. Um, part of which involves her underage nudes being leaked while she's on a, at a red carpet event and then sort of the media response to that, you know, did she do this for attention? Did she, you know, very, um, very attacking sort of headlines, which, you know, all happened in her past. But the writer also brings out how this trauma is still very present in her future um, and defines how literally this viral song Gucci Gucci is traumatizing any time that it comes back up in her life. Um, And I wanted to read this quote that sort of like lays that out here. So it's whenever Gucci Gucci starts going viral and racking up streams from nostalgic millennial Gen Z cuspers like myself, she doesn't see a dime of that money. Until she is able to pay off the rest of that million dollar advance, that song's success is a millstone around her neck. Instead of being the start of her career, Gucci Gucci now represents a reminder of everything that was taken from her. And when we talk about, you know, how do you feel about her as a person sort of around the end of this piece, the way I'm thinking of it is you have a young person who makes a viral hit song who doesn't, you know, not really expecting it to go viral or anything like that. And then immediately like off that moment, what's the quote from, uh, oh, what the hell is it from? Is it from BoJack Horseman? The, the age you are when you get rich, you stay forever, Right. So she has that viral song and then she has this corporation that, you know, pushes her this way, pushes her that way, starts crafting her image, starts deciding what is going to be profitable off of her. Um, And the corporation, as we very well know, like labels are problematic in a lot of like, you know, the black exploitation, the selling of like or the or the what's what's the word, the appropriation of hip hop 
and marketing it, you know, through a white person, making it more palatable for fans. Like a lot of the expansion of the things about her music that were problematic are expanded on behalf of the label's profits. So she doesn't ever really have a chance to kind of grow. She doesn't ever really have a chance to take back control of things. Um, And the end result of it is still this, you know, very traumatic experience for her that is also like recurring trauma as these viral moments kind of crop back up. Um, So again, you know, as the writers, like as the writer pontificates a lot, like it's hard to put your finger on it. Um, But there is a lot like, you know, a lot of empathy, a lot of empathy present in this piece. And I think it's, you know, it, it directs, at least to me, it directed a lot of my attention towards the way that labels sort of operate in these viral situations. And I think even, you know, what is it, 10 or 12 years on, um, there's a lot that we can learn from this situation as we continue to sort of like prop up these, uh, you know, viral one hit stars. Yeah. And as we move on from this piece, you know, I hope, you know, I would ask of the listener, you know, moving on and in life in general, like, the next time and from now on when you see somebody in the public eye that you're not liking that you're repulsed by think of who is putting that person there what's the reason that that person is there who's exploiting them because usually nine out of ten times there's some really serious vigorous exploitation going on that creates the figures with which we assign all this hatred and until we kind of come to terms with that you know sometimes we just we just end up making the same mistakes over and over again um but either way uh i thought this was a really great piece i also liked the little the little cat song that she has from 2019 i thought that was cute (laughs) so you know it seems like it's a better move for like growth for her you know she's been able to grow outside of the public eye which clearly is stated by the piece to be like for the better (laughs) Um, and that piece is written by Jacqueline Codiga for Merry Go Round magazine. It's called I Got the Internet Going Nuts. Create shot on the 10th anniversary of something about Craig. We've got one more piece to go, and it's from Mickey Hellerback. And it is from Idea Generation. It is an interview with Kenny Beats. A YouTube video called Kenny Beats on Community Building, Creativity, and the Art of Collaboration. So, Mickey, take it away. Yes, yes. So, the first thing to mention about Idea Generation is that it is a platform started by uh, journalist Noah Callahan Beaver, who is kind of a legacy journalist. At this point, he is just kind of a quick history of him. He started within the same sphere that people like Elliot Wilson started within Ego Trip, then XXL and places within that kind of end of the the real print era, uh, but then was one of the kind of founding, I don't know if this is the correct terminology to use, so Noah, if you're listening to have correct terminology to use, go for it, kind of founding members of Complex. Um, and really kind of built that platform from the ground up with people like Mark Echo. Uh, when it started uh, at Complex, Noah came up with a video journalism series called The Blueprint, which I don't know if either of you ever saw videos of, but there's a specific one with Elliot Wilson uh, that I was very obsessed with. Uh, the, and that this kind of structure that led to idea, idea generation, I believe, 
I mean, I'm almost positive, was started with that sort of blueprint at that show um, and then translated into what is, I think, an even more elevated version of it uh, that Noah has started with his own platform. Um, Just kind of about how the, the videos are structured first, I think. Um, what's really cool about this particular piece of video journalism in this platform is you can really see the roots of being a music journalist within Noah's structuring. Each episode to me feels like the video version of a long read profile or cover story. So you go that I had a feeling Brandon was going to have that exact reaction to that. Um, It is and the differences between the two. Yeah, but I'll get into it. Absolutely. And that will be the first thing I'll ask you. But what he does specifically is he goes into his sort of own ideology or thoughts or setting up the storytelling on his own thing, which would be his own kind of prose writing about the artist there. And then sequences that in within a interview and pull quotes as you would say of the artists themselves and tells some version of an origin story of theirs that builds up to where they are at now which is how i would define some version of the cover story now uh there are many different kind of types of things that noah does really well and individualizes within the kind of video element of the platform Um, which is actually showing you the workspace of the people that uh, he interviews. And in this one, particularly Kenny beats. Um, And then just kind of one more thing I wanted to add is my sort of overarching uh, thing that I think is really cool. And then kind of use that to focus on this particular interview with Kenny beats is what Noah sees in the people that he wants to profile is something that I've, um, valued about humans much more as I've gotten older, which I will get a joke in the group chat of even saying that sentence out loud about how old <laughs> I am. Um, anyway, Clip it. Get the sound is, <laughs> is anyway, the thing that I've grown to appreciate more rather than people who have garnered massive, whatever mainstream, whatever success is people who specifically find loopholes for their own individuality within spaces that exist and kind of follow their own path based on who they are and the loophole that they find. And I think that's really well expressed within the kind of dissection here of Kenny Beat's career, how the real loophole for him, well, there were multiple loopholes first and foremost, and he breaks them down individually. One was loophole to kind of get within the space in New York. Then he found a loophole when he was forced to go to not forced to go. That's a ridiculous sentence. When he went to Berkeley College in Boston ah. and found the loophole of um, of having that own kind of separate space from the center of things going on in New York to where when artists would come there, he would kind of bring them into his own space and curate an existence from Berkeley and then also garner some level of uh kind of access through that space. And then how he kind of went the EDM route initially because he found a loophole within his own kind of his own artistry to make money and figure out how everything worked within doing EDM. And then the loophole again of getting his own kind of communal space in LA, which eventually became the cave and a place where he kind of funneled all of his artistry through. Um, And then eventually that leads again to discord and Twitch and spaces like that. Um, 
and and uh, find making that space somewhere where new artists and emerging artists can kind of gather. And then what's really cool and why I, the best cover stories to me have a really clear through line. And the through line that Noah seems to find through looking for the loopholes that Kenny Beats is finding is that the loophole continually throughout his career is finding a way to create a communal space that is individual to him in all of the spaces that he occupied. Um, and that I think is, is again, that has to go back to kind of the conversation we had earlier in the podcast about leaving the space open for the listener, or in this case, watcher or someone who's taking this all in to kind of come up with their own ideology based on what is presented and the storytelling. And that's what it did for me personally. Um, so this is one of, one of my favorite episodes of this now one and a half seasons worth of videos, which everyone should check out. Um, yeah, Brandon, let me just Ali, Ali, you put to you the, uh, resident, that's like full, an alley oop after like a two crossover <laughs> behind the back spin move off the off yes, the sir. Easy. I, I I had a feeling my my pathway with this piece was gonna be nice for Brandon, but as our resident, I am a fully uh higher education trained journalist of the group. Uh if you would like to talk about the the structuring of this and how it and the journalistic integrity of this, uh right. go for it. Yeah, so I mean you you really hit the nail on the head when you talked about the difference between I, I view this the same way that you did, as this is a video cover story. Yes. It's not really necessarily branded or marketed that way, um, yes. but it did have me thinking about what, you know, no one really ha markets a video cover story like that. Um, but now that I'm thinking about it, this is sort of how I imagine it. And, you know, as a multimedia journalist, um, I'm constantly thinking about how stories work in different mediums and which medium is the best to tell which stories, which mediums do certain things better than others. Um, and, you know, the trade-off of deciding between the ones that you're going to use to tell the story. And this is an excellent, excellent example of a video profile. Um, if you took the audio out of this video, threw it into Otter or some kind of transcription service, you know, it would return back that 90% of the speaking time here uh, would go to Kenny Beats. And even in the most quote-heavy of written profiles, you know, you probably have direct quotes taking up possibly 30% of the piece, um, you know, 20 to 30% of the piece. So, it's really a testament here to the journalist questions that lay out the story so well without needing very many post-production voiceovers at all. Um, I, either of you or actually, Elliot, you probably have experience with this um, or listeners if you have experience with it. I don't know how many of you have gone to do video interviews, you know, shoot your B-roll and then you get back and you're trying to put together your editing package. But when I do this, I almost always go with the intention of doing my shoot and then not needing any voiceover. To me, like an ideal video package when I put it together is almost entirely the voice of my subject. Um, anything that I wanna tell, I can tell visually, maybe with some text on screen. Um, but the closer you get to having entirely just the voice of your subject, the better I feel like I've done in most video packages. I'm really like anti, you know, stand up, Brandon Hill here at the scene. You know, that <laughs> I, is not, not my style, not what I look for in video. Um, so in the future, this is definitely going to be something that I look at when I put together pieces like this as like, this is almost as close to perfection as I've, as I've seen this sort of technique done. 
Um, and, yeah, yeah and one of, one of the reasons I think or I'm inquiring that Noah is able to do that is because he does at least in the back of his mind have this kind of set of questions that he knows will lead to this kind of open monologue by the people that he's talking to and none is better than the sort of first one which I'm not going to be able to direct quote it is some version of how did your parents work life or existence kind of uh, reflect upon what what you ended up doing with your craft uh, right. and he kind of starts each episode, particularly this one with that. And then this gets Kenny beats into this whole monologue about his dad doing fake radio shows and like having this in-depth appreciation for music, which like leads to all of these different places and allows Noah to just kind of sit back and take in the story um, that he will then edit into the video. Uh, Elliot, let's go to you about. Uh, anything that really stood out to you from this, it doesn't have to be necessarily within the journalist structure, but what, what, uh, what did this evoke for you? Yeah. I mean, the, the structure of the piece is certainly fascinating. I think you guys touched on most of, of, of what I was thinking. I think also it's just something that reveals the ways in which storytelling and, and journalism is constantly shifting and evolving with technology and the new possibilities for it that speak to audiences of a younger age perhaps a lot better. Um, for me though, I think what I really love, uh, what I really took away from this piece is just how cool the story was. I think Kenny's mm -hmm. story is something that really, I don't know, it's, it's, it's wholesome in a way, it's thoughtful. You know, he's a very thoughtful speaker. He's a person who cares a lot about other people, which is something that I've always come to appreciate about him. I think that it is an underrated aspect of idolatry and of, of music fandom and of, of, of musicians in general. It's people, you know, it's very, very underrated to be empathetic sometimes. It's very underrated to be communal. Um, but community builds so much for you but also builds so much for other people. That's the whole point. When you work with other people, when you listen to them or you care about them, not only are there going to be rewards for you probably in the back end, but more importantly, you're going to make better things and you're going to have better experiences and that benefits everybody involved. And Kenny is very much a person who seems to believe very deeply in that. And also very much a person who doesn't care much about his ego protection he's not a person who cares very much about thinking himself to be this tier of producer he has you know all this experience and education literally going to berkeley literally being involved in the industry since he was a teenager and doing all these cool things as a teenager and then having this these big names when he was doing edm stuff um working with chain smokers working with all these artists and yet still being in that position of saying, well, uh, I, I don't care. I, I want to do something different and better that works more for me. And I will learn from absolutely anybody, you know, even as he said, like the 17 year old kid who doesn't know how to do anything production wise, but they know something that I don't because people are gravitating to them for something. Right. And that's the kind of thing that everybody should learn from is not this idea of stacking you know stacking tears up of yourself against other people and being this ruthless competitor you know they ask him at one point like you, you you came up you know in a family where your father was a professional basketball player and what does this competition mean anything to you and he literally didn't even address that in the clips that they used he was all he said was that 
he noted how his father worked and how his father loved basketball and how much time he would spend on it. And that gave him the perspective of how he would produce and what would mean, what it would mean for him to get good at something and to be really legitimate at something. And that just goes to show like he's not a person who is, is speaking about and thinking about this idea of competition or this idea of, of capitalizing. It's almost, you know, entirely about, bridging gaps building communities and this is the thing that we have to think about i think as creatives obviously and as just people in general it's why these stories about you know labor unionization and these stories about all types of different community building and different socioeconomic circumstances are so important because we are living in a world where people feel increasingly isolated despite the increase in technologies and some people becoming more affluent all of that the the result is people are more and more isolated oftentimes you know people my age people younger than me i see it all the time you're growing up incentivized to stay on your phone and and only interact with people behind a veil of anonymity and performance um and what or even or even only to trade value for value right like that the only the only value in building community is what you can get out of the people that you build community with and kenny is such the antithesis of that but go ahead. Sorry. Just wanted to interject. Uh, sorry. I just I had to mute this ringer. But it, it, it's that absolutely. It is that absolutely. We most of the time are told to do things for our bottom line sake, for our career sake, for our journeys, our goals. And when we're told to build community and to meet people and to learn from other people, it's with the, the idea of like, so you can be more successful, so you can conquer the world. And Kenny is very much more like, no, because it's cool. Because it's cool to build this. And of course, you have to think about your own bottom line. You have to make sure that you can eat and stuff like that. But there are going to be times wherein you sacrifice a lot of that for the sake of the value that you get out of something, not without asking for any, but literally from participating and being in community with people. So uh, I love the the aspect of community. And I love that that's emphasized in the title. And I love that that's something that's really brought out of this piece because I really think anybody could learn from it, you know? Yeah. I, have a, I have a good example of that real quick, Mickey, and then I'll toss it to you. Just something very tangible about how that community building experience um, eventually equated entirely to the career that he has. Um, and it's it's it starts with how he's talking about, you know, while he is in school at Berkeley taking classes on music business, um, he's also working as an intern for some, you know, hip hop studios around town. I forget specifically, was it Dame Dash who he was working with? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but he talks about how he's in this business class and he's learning things. And as he's learning them, you know, he's sort of second guessing, like, wait a minute, like I didn't get publishing on that song. Like I'm going to have to ask for publishing on the next one, you know? Um, and that extends out to this model he develops further down the line where he talks about, um, you know, giving out 50 to 60 beats for free and that he has, you know, he has a manager who's the manager's income is dependent on 5% of Kenny's income. Um, and they've got lawyers working on contracts for 50 to 60 beats that no one is seeing any kind of money on. And the only reason that you get people that, you know, willing to do that is because they believe in the long-term output. They believe in you. Something about you has given them the confidence that like, okay, I'm going to work 50 to 60 contracts for free because I know the bag is coming down the line. And this sort of, you know, in a roundabout way, it ends up 
getting Kenny into a position where he gave out all those beats for free, but now he's doing entire albums for artists, right? That's sort of the career arc is sort of these, all these free beats build up to this, um, where he's, he's putting out these albums that are entirely collaborative projects with individual artists. And he talks about the, the amount of appreciation that comes that the artists then show him in interviews and stories and press and how like, you know, Kenny gets his name tagged on these projects as like a, as a, you know, as a lead artist on these projects. And he has producers coming to him asking him like, yo, how did you get that? Like, how did you finesse, you know, an entire album project that your name is, you know, right there next to Vince Staples. Um, and it wasn't really even like his intention. It's not like it was some master plan and that's always where he saw it going. It just became a natural extension of him being a very like, look, I'm going to give you 100%. I'm going to give you everything that I've got because that's the kind of guy I am. And people just returned that energy. Um, we'll have to close soon, Mickey, but some yeah, no, thoughts this, on it before we go. I think you've set me up really well for the last thing I wanted to say. So I think what this platform helps highlight about Kenny is also something this platform does particularly well, which is fight against something that I think is the antithesis to community uh, because of the type of, you know, status kind of thing that it builds, which is unsolicited advice. So Kenny only offers <laughs> kind of things when it's like solicited and only speaks from his own experience, which people crave to know about once they see how he's you know, openly contributed to things. And one of the most uh, compelling things I think this platform does, rather than ever asking the artists of success for advice, is it asks them for stories. And as they tell the stories of how things came to be, pulls out little gems of knowledge and pushes them out as these little ideas that you could maybe use to help you in whatever your creative endeavors are. Um, but rather than being like, this is that dude, he needs to tell you exactly what it is that you need to do. It's this is that dude, this is his story, and there will be little elements that you can take or leave for being possible things that can help you. Um, but Noah does a really good good job of like pulling those graphics of these potential ideas. He does these kind of like ding, ding, ding ideas that pop up. And I think that is kind of the essential thing in community is being able to share your perspective, but your perspective, not with the intention of being like, I'm that dude, but with the intention of being like, I'm going to tell you what worked for me. If it works for you or it helps you kind of redirect or think about what you're doing in a different way, that's really great. Um, and I think, uh, that unsolicited advice is one of the most annoying things to ever receive. And it's nine times out of 10, super unhelpful. And that I think indirectly with how this process is set up, um, the sort of natural sharing of storytelling being a better way of community communicating and creating community is something that this is really pushing forward. And, uh, I think is one of the best parts about the platform in general. Yeah. The well Alchemist said. interview they did is also really, really good. Just to plug a second video. Incredible. Yeah, there's a there's a, a season and a half now of incredible interviews. I and beyond just music, I mean, one of my favorites that I've seen, honestly, um, is the more recent one with Salehi Bembury of the Salehi Bembury Crocs and New Balance collabs. Plus, also, he created the Chain Reaction sneaker for Versace. 
Um, but he, as a, a fashion designer and uh, industrial designer, interestingly, first and foremost, um, that breakdown is also really essential. There's a lot of great interviews to check out. If you liked our conversation about this video and watch this video, there's plenty more. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm definitely going to be binging some of these afterwards. So thank you for putting me on. Thank you for putting us on. That is, again, Kenny Beats on community building, creativity, and the art of collaboration from Idea Generation, headed by Noah Callahan Beaver, the creator and host. That was our third and final piece of the day. Again, the others are I Got the Internet Going Nuts, Creation on the 10th Anniversary of Something About Cray by Jacqueline Codiga for Mary Go Round Magazine. And the first one we did for the New York Times by Miguel Otarola is How Music Loops Help Me Feel More Present. If you enjoyed our podcast, please make sure to rate, please make sure to leave comments, and please make sure to support local journalism. If you've got other pieces that you would like to share with us, you know, other stuff from independent artists, independent writers, people who are just getting started as journalists, we love to, we love to see it, we love to support. So thank you so much. And thank you for listening. Yeah, I'd like to make a, a a specific pitch call for more stuff like idea generation, like little 30 minute sort of like talk show or like interview shows. Because I've been like, you know, in the morning, like I like to put a video on like that, like drink a cup of coffee. And there's only so many episodes of hot ones. So send, yeah. you know, send the uh, send the plugs. I might I might be able to, to hook you up with some word. Anyway, goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, guys. This episode of Insert Source featured Mickey Heller back, Brandon Hill, and Elliot Sang of the Central Source Creative Collective. The episode is edited by me, Charlie Taylor, Fifth M Podcast Network. Music for the show is fucked up by Basti. Thanks to Chill Music for the bit to use. This has been Insert Source Fifth M Podcast Network production. Links for Basti, Chill Music, Central Source Fifth Element, and content cover the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time as we continue our search for Source.